Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for another opportunity we have to gather together as our Sunday school class, Lord. Pray as we go through this section of 1 Peter that you'll give us clarity to understand how these things apply to us. Lord, there are important lessons for each one of us, and I pray that we will be able to not just hear the word, but that we'll be able to be doers of the word as you would want us to be. I pray for everyone who is here to be able to focus and to gather what's necessary for them, and I pray for people that aren't here, Lord, that you'll continue to bless them and strengthen them for the task in front of them. Lord, we love you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you will turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, we find ourselves at verses 5 through 7. And as we had opportunity the last couple of weeks, as I sort of gave a summary of where we were, we had started chapter 5 back in February, and the first four verses were Peter talking specifically to church elders. He was talking as an elder to elders and giving them strong exhortations in terms of how they carry out the functions of ministry. As I presented the material starting way back then and then I summarized and finished, wound up with a total of eight points in the outline, but it was what I labeled principles of effective church leadership. But I could have picked any label, and given that First Peter is all about holiness, it could have said, what does holy church leadership look like? In terms of the function of the office of elders, this is what it should be. But Peter, after taking those few verses to single out the elders, now returns to the congregation as a whole. As his letter is read, I've tried to picture many times what it must be like when these letters were first written because they didn't have chapters and verses, and basically somebody would stand up and read the letter to the entire church. But after that little section of four verses that was specifically to the elders. Now Peter, as he's bringing his letter to the close, comes back to the church. And again, he's dealing with what does holiness look like? And as I looked through and began studying these verses, I realized Peter is calling us to do something, but it's not necessarily of the hand and feet variety of go out and and take care of some task. It's a heart issue. He's exhorting us as believers, but he's exhorting us to have certain heart attitudes. So I'm going to read, starting back at verse 1, we've already covered the first four verses, but for context, I'm going to start back at verse 1, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 7, and then our study this morning will be verses 5 through 7. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory." Verse 5, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. 
casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. As I thought it through, I just have a simple outline. It's three parts, but it's hard attitudes necessary for holy living in the body of Christ. It's a little bit more words than I use, but that really is simply what he's saying. It's hard attitudes necessary for holy living in the body of Christ, meaning when we're together as a church family. And the first attitude is this. Holiness requires a submissive heart. Holiness requires a submissive heart. Verse 5 says, you younger men, likewise be subject to your elders. And when he uses the word likewise, he's obviously tying it into those first verses. And I think Peter is still talking about the elders of a local church, but he's addressing some members of the congregation in relation to that. Now, there are some who have looked at this and people smarter than me that have come to different conclusions, and they say, well, this is not really talking about elders of the church. This is just telling young people how to relate to older people. But, but I think the overall context persuades me that he's still talking about elders in the office of elder, and he's telling the younger men, literally younger men, to be subject to their elders. It's another way. The word just means submissive. Doing what the authority figure asks of you. One writer on this was talking about a sense of urgency, that this isn't just a casual thing. This is saying this needs to occur immediately. And it has to be done voluntarily. There's nothing here that would suggest the elders are supposed to go out and find all the young men and set them down in the room and force them to be submissive, to be subject to the elders. Rather, it's the duty of the individuals. And when you go through First Peter, as we have done over time, and I've even taught some of these verses recently, you see that this idea of submitting to authority is a big issue for Peter, and it comes up over and over again. So, for example, the first part of verse 13 in chapter 2, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And we talked about that. I even recently preached about that as far as submitting to the government, even a corrupt government. I talked last week from chapter 2, verse 18 in the evening service, but the first part of verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. From a long time ago, we taught in chapter 3, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husband. So what Peter is reinforcing here is a duty that is common to all Christians. All of us have a duty at various times to submit to different authorities. And he's saying, younger men, you take this hard attitude of submission and apply it to the elders of your local church. Now, before we look around and say, well, we're not younger men, and none of us are. We're all older by the biblical standards. It still applies to us. Certainly, it seems that Peter was directing it to a particular target, but I would remind you from Hebrews chapter 13 what the writer says in verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be 
unprofitable for you. So it is fair to say, even though Peter is directing this to a particular subset of the church, every church member has a duty to be subject to, to be submissive to your leaders. And I read some various things, and there's a certain amount of speculation in this, but I read some things, and one of the speculations was, and I wouldn't stake my life on it, but perhaps what Peter realized was it's the younger men that tend to be the most independent-minded, that tend to be revved up, that tend to be perhaps a little bit more rebellious because they see things a little bit differently and they're excited and they want to do things. In fact, there's even a warning about new believers not becoming elders because of pride and falling into temptation. So perhaps something was going on in these churches such that Peter needed to remind the the young, perhaps headstrong young men who were excited and on fire that they needed to slow down and submit. But either way, the issue is the heart. We have to make certain that we don't allow a rebellious spirit to percolate and take root in us. And that's hard because we all start out in life until we know Christ, we start out as rebels, and then we fight that rebellion forever. We can't, even in relation to the church, take the attitude of, well, I'm going to be my own boss, I'll do what I want to do, and I appreciate those guys, but I'll just do whatever I want to do anyway. A lot of churches operate like the old scripture from the time of the judges, and each man did what was right in his own eyes. And we can't have that. That's not the way the Lord would want. We need to cultivate an attitude that Jesus modeled in Matthew 26 at the end of verse 39 where he said, yet not as I will, but as you will. And our willingness to submit is part and parcel of holiness. It shows part and parcel of our love. Since God tells us to submit, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. You'll keep my commandments. So we need to make sure that we do that. So the first commandment, the first heart attitude is that holiness requires a submissive heart. But to have a submissive heart is tied into, and I could almost guess whether your heart's submissive is whether you have the second heart attitude. Holiness requires a humble heart. Holiness requires a humble heart. And yet, I don't have much fear of contradiction. If you don't have a humble heart, you're not going to have a submissive heart. These things are tied together. After Peter gives a specific direction to the younger men, he says this, And all of you, in the middle of verse 5, And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. So, there's two aspects of this as we look at this humility, but before we even get into what humility looks like, it's very clear. To the extent that he was targeting only a segment of the church population at this point, he reaches out and he grabs everybody, including the leaders. This isn't even just for the people in the pews. This is for everybody and all of you. 
clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. This is one of those sections of Scripture you'll see people refer to the one another's because over and over throughout the New Testament, you'll see you should love one another and pray for one another and care for one another and bear one another's burdens. Here, we have a responsibility to each other to clothe ourselves with humility. And of course, this isn't literal clothing, although I was thinking that would be nice. You know, Hey, Debbie, did you iron my humble shirt? I need to wear that to church today. That would sure be a lot easier if we could just do that. But it's a very graphic picture that wouldn't necessarily be something we normally do, but once I illustrate it from Scripture, you'll understand exactly what's going on. This idea of clothing yourself has to do with putting on a garment, perhaps tying on a garment. And the original context of this word would suggest that it primarily referred to a slave who was putting on a work garment, a work apron, a work cloth. And this is illustrated for us. What does it look like to clothe yourself with humility? The imagery that Peter's drawing on likely was a specific recollection he had of something Jesus did. Jesus, the Creator, the Sovereign Lord, the King of Kings, according to John chapter 13, did something remarkable. We're probably familiar with the account, but I'm going to read it. It had to do with the, you know, him ministering to his 12. He said this in verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. That's the similar imagery to clothe yourselves with humility. And then what did he do? He washed the disciples' feet. He served them. The lowliest and most humble of tasks, the Creator God in the flesh did that. Farther down in chapter 13 at verse 12, So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. I think Peter is specifically borrowing that imagery, that recollection from his mind and saying as Jesus was willing to take a servant's cloth and do the most humble and lowly of task of washing disciples' feet, you put on that type of attitude of humility towards one another. It really comes down to how do we view ourselves in the body of Christ? Do we view ourselves as the center of attention? Do we need everything focused on us? Do we need everything to go our way? Or are we willing to defer to others? Peter's reminding us that within the church, a me-first attitude is deadly. It has no place. We will never be holy as God is holy if we're not clothing ourselves with humility. Pride does not lead to holiness. In fact, 
as Peter's about to illustrate for us, if we puff ourselves up with pride, even in the church, we put ourselves on a collision course, not just with each other, but with God himself. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to the proud. Peter adds a very graphic warning. I think his clothing yourselves with humility was graphic, calling back to mind what our Savior did as an example to us. But then he reaches back and quotes from the Greek version of Proverbs 3.34 to remind us of how God deals with pride. James 4.6 quoted the exact same section, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So it was a common recollection of this proverb in the life of the early church. And he's picturing what happens if someone doesn't clothe themselves with humility. And the imagery, and, and other writers have used this language, is God dressing himself for battle and lining up to be in opposition to anyone who is proud. God is against that. He's not going to allow that to continue. And what Peter is making clear to us is that in the church, as we relate to one another, pride has to be defeated We should be striving so much to clothe ourselves with humility that even when we see pride in ourselves, we hate it and we're trying to kill it because if we don't, God will take care of it for us. Again, we have though, even with this warning, God's opposed to the proud, the promise that if we clothe ourselves with humility, God gives grace to the humble. He shows his undeserved favor to the humble, to those who adopt the same heart attitude that Jesus modeled. God's not standing against them. He's willing to reach down and help them. God's not lining up to oppose them. God will do anything to help them. And remember the overall context of this book. The original recipients of 1 Peter were suffering. They were living hard lives. There was a lot of hostility toward them. For many of them, not only did they have problems with the government and they're being told to submit, and not only did they have problems, some of them were slaves and they're being told to submit, and some of them had bad marriages and they're being told, stay there and submit. And they were suffering and being persecuted It's just a reminder that in the midst of all that, God still gives grace. If in the midst of your suffering and hurting you are humble, God will give you the grace necessary to sustain you. If we're humble towards one another, then regardless of how difficult our circumstances are, we're in the position to receive what we need from the Lord. But if in the midst of those trials we start getting self-focused, if in the midst of all those things happening we start saying, well, it's about time for me to be the priority, 
then we're not going to find God's grace. We're going to find God humbling us. Peter takes this a little bit further because he knows that if we're proud towards one another, if we're not clothing ourselves with humility towards one another, that means we're also not humble before the Lord. These things are not unrelated. And so verse 6, he says something again, very strong, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. And this really ties into this idea of, he's given this exhortation to believers who are suffering, clothe yourselves with humility with one another. God is opposed to the proud. He'll stand against you, so therefore you better make yourself humble before him. Again, he says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And this is that reminder as God is opposed to the proud, as I mentioned, several commentators that write about this said it pictures God ready for battle to come against you for your pride. And his mighty hand is just an illustration of that power, his sovereign will. And they're saying, before God and his power, humble yourself. Willingly bow to the Lord. If you struggle with pride, kill that aspect of your personality in whatever way is possible. In the context of all these trials, it's a matter of the heart attitude. It's remembering that we don't deserve anything. We already have more than what we deserve because we have Christ. So when we come before one another in the body of Christ, we need to have the hard attitude of humility. We need to make sure that we're humble before one another. We need to make sure that we're humble before the Lord. It's critical because if we don't do this, God will be forced to do it for us. That's what his opposition looks like. Again, in the context of how these things come about, we realize in the midst of difficulties, it's hard at times to stay humble. Sometimes we are immediately humble, but there's other times that trials, unfortunately, cause us to look inward. And the more we look at ourselves and look inwardly, the more we can become self-focused. I read a, a comment, a thought, that was just addressing the fact that part of the reason why in the midst of trials it can be hard to have humility and put others' interests before our own is because at some point we say, but I'm in trouble, I need help. Who's going to take care of me? But we have to humble ourselves before the Lord. Regardless of what's going on, regardless of the trial, we have to be willing to bow our knees before God's sovereignty and accept what he brings our way. Not only should we not be fighting with each other to have our way, we shouldn't be fighting with God to get our way. 
what God brings to us is enough. And he has a promise here. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. This picture of the king of the universe, of us willingly laying down our wills, says that he may exalt you at the proper time. This really is just a picture that God, for his own purposes, controls the outcome. When we think about our lives, we understand that before God, we are nothing. If any of us could replicate the circumstances with Isaiah, we would see exactly what he means. If we, even now, were propelled into the presence of God in all of his splendor and majesty, it would be earth-shattering. We would not, with any kind of arrogance, say, Hey God, you're a lucky day, I'm here. We would fall on our faces, I do believe. But I also believe that at some point, God would reach down and lift us up and welcome us to heaven. Whatever humility we have because of Christ, we'll be welcomed into his presence because he doesn't see us in all of our sin. He sees us in Christ's righteousness. So this picture Peter gives is we submit our lives in humility before the all-powerful God of the universe and at some point it will be recognized by him. It may be at that moment in time in the future when we're together with the Lord or it could be that even now on earth we're vindicated. This is all in God's hands. If you think about these original hearers, they were being slandered, which means the accusations were false. They were suffering. They were accused of things. The people around them were wondering, hey, why don't you get with the program and join us in all of this sin? And that really is the exact scenario we find ourselves in today. With the rest of society wondering, why are those, that little group of Christians that are so literal and they believe the Bible too much, why don't they just come along with the program God may vindicate us now. He may vindicate some of us now. He may vindicate us later. But the point is this. At some point, God will decide to clear our names, to vindicate us, to elevate us to where we actually are in Christ. It's not a perfect analogy, but in the context of things... You just picture of the Olympics, you know, there's always the podium, the, the stand where people come up here. And there's the gold medal is the highest one in the middle. And almost the picture here, and, and it's, again, I just try and come up with pictures in my mind. It's almost as like we're starting to climb the podium and we don't have the medal. If we try and do that, God will put us down. He won't let us do that. But at some point, if we're humble and we're patient and we endure and we have a hard attitude of humility, God may very well place us there because of Christ. So that brings us to our third and final point. These are hard attitudes necessary for holy living in the body of Christ. 
First, holiness requires a submissive heart. Second, holiness requires a humble heart. And third, holiness requires a trusting heart. Holiness requires a trusting heart. I'm going to go back to verse 6 and read verse 6 and 7. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. This really is tying in again to humility, but it's a specific part of this. Casting all your anxiety on him. And our anxiety is what we think it is. It's our worries, it's our concerns, it's our fears. In the midst of injustice and hostility, which the original recipients of the letter faced, and which we all think is coming our way ever more so, there's a lot to be concerned about. Will I lose my job? Will my family stay together? Will my friends reject me? Will I keep suffering? Will I be hurt physically? Will I get better? Will I be slandered? Will I lose my reputation? Will I be accused of things that aren't true? On and on and on it goes. And I think I can say without contradiction, we all get that because we all have anxieties and worries. And Peter's telling us to do something here. And it really is an attitude of the heart. He's saying, take them all. Whatever they are, you think of every worry, every anxiety, every everything, and you bundle them together and you place them on the Lord. Casting all your anxiety on Him, it's literally throwing it, moving it over. As one person said, don't know that I can articulate it as well as that individual did as I was reading it, but they said, this isn't throwing your troubles on Him. Because that's life. It's the worries about your troubles that you're casting on him. The troubles themselves are part of his sovereignty. But we take all of those worries, all of those anxieties, and we turn them over to God. We trust them to God. We trust the ultimate outcomes to God. Why? Because he cares for you. He cares for each one of us as his children. I think about that quite a bit because in the world, we're nothing. I didn't look at a counter, but there's 8 billion people. Who are we? But we're not on the news. The only way we would get on the news is probably if we committed some heinous crime. Nobody cares about us. Well, our families care. Debbie cares. I care about her. But the point is, we're nobodies. And yet, the God of the universe that created the heavens knows our name. He knows each one of us. And He personally doesn't just care for the mass of humanity. He cares for each one of us individually. And we can trust Him 
to sustain us because his heart is inclined towards us. We are in Christ. We're his children. Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. If we think for a few moments, we realize when we start getting caught up in our anxiety, our worries, it's because we've taken our eyes off of God and we're just focused on us. We forget that He cares and we spend our time thinking we've got to solve our own problems. Or in the midst of suffering, if we're not careful, Satan can whisper in our ear that God doesn't really care about you. But God does care. Our suffering isn't evidence of his apathy or inattention. Even in our suffering, he's working for our good. Again, it it comes back to why don't we trust God? Because we think, well, who's going to take care of me? I've got to do it myself. But that's not true theologically. And we know if we've tried very hard to take care of ourselves that we can only go so far. Peter is really teaching what Jesus taught. In Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 25, and I'm going to read a long section because it's so applicable, but it's exactly what Peter is talking about. Beginning at verse 25 of Matthew 6, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace... Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I think Peter is just echoing of this. And he understands that his hearers with hard lives, with persecution, with hostility for being Christians, with suffering in the workplace, with suffering in home life, with suffering at the hands of the government, there can be a tendency to say, I've got to do something. And he's just reminding us what Jesus said. Don't worry about tomorrow. If you're not worried about tomorrow, there's not many anxieties. If you think about what you worry about, most of it never comes true. So understand with all of this what Peter is saying. This is really, if you think about it, he's already taught the entire book. These are just sort of summary statements. Holiness begins with the heart. So for each one of us, as you look at this section of Scripture, as you think through what's here... Ask God to show you, God, are there areas where I don't have a submissive heart because I need it? Are there areas where I don't have a humble heart because I need it? And Lord, are there areas of my life 
where I don't trust you, where I'm not casting my anxieties on you, but I'm keeping them and I'm cherishing them and I'm enjoying worrying about them as though I have to solve all my problems. Ask God to show it to you and repent. Again, holiness begins with the heart. Our outward actions matter, but the heart is where those actions come from. So let me close our time with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray for these hard attitudes in ourselves. Lord, having a submissive heart and a humble heart and a trusting heart, it's hard to come by. Lord, we tend to be self-sufficient. And there's an aspect where we should work hard and we should be diligent and we should try and be responsible course, Lord, Peter's not rebuking those things. But if we're not careful, it's easy for us to become self-reliant and dependent not on you, but on our own wits and skills and our bank accounts and our abilities. Lord, we pray that you would humble us. Lord, we don't want to be proud. We don't want you in opposition to us. But even in trying to attain these hard attitudes of holiness, Lord, we need your help. And you give grace to the humble. Help us find that grace. Lord, we love you. We trust you. We believe. Help our unbelief. We ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.